I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 13 in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. It may seem as if the easiest way to figure out who the heck you are is by mapping yourself on an in or out matrix based on whether or not you follow certain rules or belong to a certain camp. This is a faster way to answer the question, but the reality is more frustratingly ambiguous, and it takes a really long time. The Desert Fathers, that's a title given to different monks and sages and hermits who lived somewhere in the sands of Egypt around the third century. And their collected alphabetized writings and expressions and sayings have been combined into a volume that's often just described as sayings of the Desert Fathers. You can buy different translations of it. It's a fascinating read. In it, there is a famous story that goes like this, and I'm reading straight out of one of the translations. Abba Pambo asked Abba Anthony, what ought I to do? And the old man said to him, do not trust in your own righteousness, do not worry about the past, but control your tongue and your stomach, meaning your appetites, your flesh, if you like. Abba Lot went to Abba Joseph and said to him, Abba, as far as I can say, my little office, meaning prayers, I fast a little, I pray and meditate, I live in peace as far as I can, I purify my thoughts, what else can I do? So this person's already on the track following Jesus, uh, uh, you know, doing spiritual disciplines. Then the old man, his mentor, stood up, stretched his hands toward heaven, his fingers became like ten lamps of fire, and he said to him, if you will, you can become all flame. From the earliest disciples of Jesus, there has always been a desire to move from the basics of apprenticeship to maturity and mastery of the way. And from the earliest disciples, such a way has been paved by Jesus and by disciples that came before us. For many centuries, there's been a long and difficult road, a, a journey upward from a little spark to becoming all flame completely engulfed with the fiery love of union with God. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 in the New Testament, feel free to consult the table of contents. We have been spending the summer studying this little letter about a group of Christians in the first century up against cultural pressure to distort or abandon the teachings of Jesus. So tonight we're going to move into chapter 3, of the letter that we call Colossians, and it only has four short chapters. See, I told you it would not take as long as Matthew. Hooray! La- <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> I thought it was exciting. Last week, are, are you guys all right? Are you with me? Do you forget the, okay, you're, you're all right. Last week, our friend Hakeem Bradley was here. He unpacked the end of chapter two. Tonight, we're going to kind of retread the text a little bit because it's going to help contextualize the work that we have to do Tonight, so go ahead and stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of scriptures, and we're going to read Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 16. Paul writes, 
Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in the Messiah. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have a lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with the Messiah. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with the Messiah in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. One scholar I read this week described this passage as, quote, an apocalyptic eschatology of what has been inaugurated in Christ. Now, with terms like that floating around, a passage like this teaches itself. Heck, I don't know, I hardly have to say anything else at all. And what I mean is that, listen, I, I happen to like theology a lot, probably more than the average Joe, I suppose. And I went to seminary, you know, did the grad school thing and all that. And you have to sit around saying things like apocalyptic, inaugurated eschatology with a straight face, like that's how we all talk. And I wish I could tell you that I was above the song and dance of it all. But like I said, I like theology, so terms like these sound pretty dang cool to me. That they do, at least in my ears. Of course, outside of seminary and the books written for seminary students and professors, no one talks like this. And you know me, I have this extreme allergic reaction to anything that I think is phony. So eventually, my enthusiasm for the lingo of the academy waned. And I remember the moment specifically. Uh, I, this is an actual story. I was sitting in a class one afternoon. Levi, you know what this is like. And uh, there was a gentleman next to me. We were engaged in a very stimulating conversation. And he said, this guy next to me said, Well, when we investigate the Pauline corpus... The Pauline corpus, my God. And I said, stuff Paul wrote. Just say stuff Paul wrote. Nobody talks like that. And he was aghast. My classmate was aghast. Where, where is this coming from? But even so, in spite of it all, deep down, I actually like this stuff. An apocalyptic eschatology of what has been inaugurated in Christ. The meaning is actually really simple. The false teaching that has begun to invade the church in Colossae puts all of its eggs in the baskets of rules, regulations informed by Judaism, the rules and regulations of the Old Testament, and a, a unique sect of Jewish mysticism. But disciples of Jesus believe that the story of God that absolutely began in the Jewish scriptures and the Hebrew Old Testament, it has been brought to a harrowing fulfillment in Jesus in his life and death and resurrection. So Christians live informed by Jesus. Jesus is everything. No supplemental religiosity is necessary. Thus, 
to structure one's life around the part of the story that came before Jesus would revert to the principles that fail to put Jesus at the center. This, Paul writes, is not participating in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And participating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is what Christians do. In Paul's mind, Paul, who's the author of this letter, living informed by Jesus' death and resurrection means living into Jesus' teaching in the here and now. It's something that Jesus called the kingdom of God. And living aware of a coming day when Jesus will return to restore and redeem the entire world. A life under the teaching and kingship of Jesus, present to the here and now, mindful of the future. This has to do with something called an apocalypse. In Greek, the word apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world or end times event at all. It simply means to reveal or to uncover. So the ancient tradition of what we call apocalyptic literature, if you read books like Daniel in the Old Testament or books like Revelation at the end of the Bible, it, they use vivid, poetic, often highly symbolic language to uncover a divine perspective. It reveals things from God's incredible vantage point. And when you know how God thinks and what God says about everything, it changes everything. Therefore, an apocalypse just means an unveiling of things from a divine perspective. So... Paul tells the Christian churches, look, you were dead and then God raised you. You have been raised to life with Jesus. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, you now have an entirely different way of understanding the world anchored in the future hope of the renewal of all things. You now know where the human project is headed. We have God's present and future perspective. So, this is an apocalyptic eschatology, meaning a divine revealing of what happens in the future because of what Jesus has done in the present. So let's look at it line by line and figure out where we, Van City, fit into the whole thing. Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now, Remember, this is all one continuous line of thought reaching back to the beginning of the letter. In context, Paul is talking about baptism. Baptism is for the church this new symbol of God's covenant family that has replaced the old covenant of circumcision. Don't worry, we went into the Bible's concept of circumcision in detail a couple weeks ago. So you've heard it already. If you missed it, it's still there on the podcast. If you didn't listen that, to that either, well, don't you feel left out. Man, it was, it was scintillating. Anyway... In baptism, the disciple of Jesus is lowered beneath the water, symbolizing death, solidarity with the death of Jesus, and then raised up from the waters as a symbol of being raised to life with Jesus. So Paul writes, since then you have been raised with Christ, and verse 1 goes on, set your hearts on things above where Christ or the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, pause here for a moment, and let's work this bit out. This line, for those of us who have traveled in church circles, is really easy to misinterpret. The misinterpretation of the line, I would argue, set your minds on things above, not earthly things, is, uh, has been colored by my church upbringing in southeast Georgia. We were actually talking about this in my Van City community last week. We've been sharing our stories about how we came to faith in Jesus. If you're in the community, hopefully you've been doing the same thing. And I know some of you communities are like, what, you're still doing that? We finished that like weeks ago. But listen, in my defense, we have 10 freaking small children. 
in our community. It's about to be 11. Um, so the fact that we get anything done at all, I think, is pretty impressive. So, you know, we're all sitting in a room together because we don't want to split up in groups and share stories of how we came to faith. Everyone should know those stories. So we're all trying to do it together in one room, opening ourselves up, trying to be vulnerable. And, you know, someone will start crying. And then all of a sudden, my son appears comically slithering around everyone's feet because he is now a snake for some reason. He's saying that, I'm a snake, like going through, okay, like someone's trying to cry and tell the story. Or two kids run into the room at this like important moment in somebody's testimony because one kid claims that the other kid hit them in the face with a plastic sword and the other kid is carrying a sword and looks really suspicious, but we didn't see it. So it was, it's honestly probably true. My kids are already on round three of the new He-Man sequel cartoons, so there have been many sword-related incidents in my house as of late. And my son, who happens to connect more with Skeletor than He-Man, Skeletor is the antagonist, He-Man is the protagonist, he's been going around saying in the Skeletor voice, I am the Lord of Destruction, which you have to admit, it sounds pretty awesome, uh, and it makes me want to change my job title at Van City. But... We're already having enough trouble getting people to come to church, so that's probably not the best idea. But plastic sword-related incidents, coincidentally, you know, aside, coincidentally, they, they were one of the reasons that my parents banned my brother and me from watching He-Man back in 1985, if you can believe it. The other bigger reason that we weren't allowed to watch He-Man after, you know, a few episodes in was because the show is actually called He-Man and the Masters of what? The universe, right. And my mom said, I kid you not, He-Man is not the master of the universe, God is. So the Saturday the He-Man cartoon was out after that. Who can argue with that? Uh, Saturday morning cartoons were worldly. See, you thought uh, this was an ADD tangent, but I was coming all the way back around. That was the plan the whole time. Worldly, in the insular southern world of my upbringing, essentially referred to any artifact of culture that offended the, the conservative sensibilities of my parents' generation. So a young man with a short, tidy haircut is respectable, upright, and righteous, and a young man with a long or wild or dyed haircut is worldly. And by worldly, they meant bad, you know, uh, wrapped up in this broken, sinful world. Tucking your shirt in is righteous, piercing your ears is worldly. The Buttercream Gang which is a horrible uh, Christian movie we watched in church, is righteous. But uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe is worldly. Now, you don't need any kind of sophisticated philosophical needles to poke holes in the obvious ridiculousness of this kind of fundamental fundamentalism. But even though this line of thinking isn't, I know, in the air that we breathe in 2021 in the world of the Pacific Northwest, it does have lingering effects that can color the way that we receive New Testament terminology if you happen to have grown up in the church or around the church. Set your mind on things above can read, just worry about the age to come. Just worry about saving souls. Just worry about going to heaven when you die. Don't bother with the perishable nature of the here and now, which is the exact opposite of what Paul means to say. Things above we think, actually has two meanings in the scriptures. This is great. Watch this. First, the Bible often talks about the heavens, and by this, it does not mean a cloudy city where souls go to live after their bodies die. By the heavens, the Bible either means the actual physical sky, 
or they mean God's space, the space where God is, almost like God's dimension, where God rules and reigns from his cosmic throne over all things, where God is. So by things above, Paul means the place where God is, God's place. Set your mind on where God is. It's like saying, keep your focus on God's perspective, on what it looks like when God is in charge of your life and everything you do. Think, Paul is saying, of the kingdom of God all the time. Think about the way of Jesus and goodness and justice and mercy and peace. Think about those things and live that way as a result. But Paul also uses this language to describe the supremacy of Jesus or the Messiah. Look at this from Ephesians 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. So Paul, in Paul's theology, the heavens is God's space, just like the rest of the scriptures, but it's also where Jesus of Nazareth is. He is above, meaning superior to, truer than, better than every spiritual force, every religious doctrine, every worldview, and every political power. To set your mind on things above is to live according to the will of God, which Paul now believes we do by practicing the way of Jesus together. And that is about the way we live now in the world, in our own culture, in our lives, in our respective spheres of influence, our own world. God's reality revealed in Jesus is what informs the way that we talk to one another, why we work, how we work, how we parent, how we relate to friends and family and spouses, the way that we shop, the way that we eat, the way that we organize our time, our habits, all of this we do as disciples of Jesus with our minds and hearts set above, so to speak. Scott McKnight argues, the gospel declares these four or five events in the life of Jesus, and the gospel also summons us to enter into the death and the resurrection of Jesus, into the death in order to die to sins, and into the resurrection in order to walk in new creation life. Walk in new creation life, as in proceed, move forward. This is going somewhere. Your status, as it were, in Jesus is not something that happened to you and it's over with. It's not simply a state of being. It's not just, oh, I'm a Christian and that's just a static state of being. It's something that happened to you and continues to happen as you grow and mature in spiritual formation. Walk in new creation life, meaning you are moving, you are going. The fact that you died and were raised to life in Jesus is something that is both true and is becoming true over time. More on that in a bit. Let's get back to the text. Colossians 3, verse 3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Again, Paul is reprising a pre-established paradigm. Think back to Colossians 1. Paul wrote, I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's the idea. Every beautiful mystery of God 
has been revealed in Jesus, the best and truest revelation of God's very essence. And now, those who give their lives to Jesus can be joined to him, to God the Father, in relational union. This picture of intimacy is actually incredible. Whereas many think of God as inherently unknowable in his cosmic divinity, Paul is saying that we not only see God in Jesus, who is knowable, but that we are with God in Jesus. It's not just that we can know this profoundly unknowable thing in God. It's that we can be united to him in intimacy and relationship. Everything previously hidden as God's mystery is now ours to discover in loving relationship with God himself. We are hidden with the Messiah in God. And that's not the end of it. Just as we are to carry out our lives in this age with upward focus, meaning and purpose, growing in our witness to God, it's all headed somewhere. So finally, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. God's ultimate plan of redemption in Jesus is not something that will be carried out detached from his people, meaning you sit around and wait, God's going to do his thing. This is a thing that belongs to us as well. The renewal of all things is about us as well. It's a glorious reality that we get to share with God. And that, I think, isn't too complicated an idea to comprehend. We know the world isn't right, that it's broken. We, too are longing for justice and peace and restoration, for wrongs to be righted, for the curse of death to be undone. And Paul is reminding these Christians, it will. The curse of death will be undone. You'll see. You will be there. You will share in the glory of Jesus, in the renewal of all things, what my kids call when Jesus makes the world all better. Now, before we end, two things that I want to impress on you, on our church, from this text and its, in, and its implications all these years later. First, what it means to set your minds on things above, and second, the re that redemption takes a very long time. So let's start with the whole set your mind on things above thing. If there's one thing the plague era has taught us, it's that we are, as a species, big fat suckers. And there's all sorts of reasons for it. The world is screwed up, so are we. We have trauma and baggage and psychological dispositions and genetics and upbringing and chaos. But we are suckers as humans. We, we let outside sources change our minds all the time. An article, a documentary, a podcast, we're suckers, human beings. We, we think of ourselves as enlightened because we trust one thing and not another. And at the end of the day, some of it's pretty arbitrary. But there are things that we want to be true and we tend to look for the kinds of sources that will say so, and we ignore everything else. Paul talks about setting your mind on things that are above. Think about that language, your mind, meaning he wants you to be thinking and learning and meditating and comprehending, dwelling on the things of Jesus all the time. And Paul's been getting at this over and over and over again in this letter. And everyone, even the smartest smarty pants, is being formed by the things that they grant mental real estate. The stuff that you watch and listen to and read and ponder, be it art and entertainment or your peers or your family or the news or social media. So the, the question is, who is teaching us? That doesn't mean that you can never entertain outside opinions. Of course you can and of course you should be able to. But who do you seek out for answers? What is forming you? 
How do you balance the ideas in your mind and the things that you entertain? This is why there grew a trendy movement in which rather than basing one's spiritual journey on the accumulated wisdom of centuries worth of thinkers that dedicated their lives to the slow process of discipleship, learning to be wrong, worked out in the accountability of community, instead, the trend became throwing out a 2,000-year-old movement based on the gripes of a few 20-somethings who are mad at their pastors and parents. And this is how many became convinced that a few months or even a couple of years with hurt feelings and jaded podcasters were really our best resources for resolving ancient mysteries to which sage and saints have given their entire lives, thousands of years. We have been trained like lab, rat, lab rats to devour and digest what the information, information age calls content. We approach packets of content for the sweet, sweet information inside, tear it, op tear it open, gobble it up, and, you know, an explosion of crumbs like Cookie Monster, hardly of anything's going in. And then, then we move along, solidified, solidified in this new thing that we now absolutely believe, whether it's self-help or politics or journalism or diet or media, you read the book or watch the YouTube video or you binge the docuseries or you skim the article or you deep dive the conspiracy theory and now you're all about Zen or minimalism or keto or whatever it is. And we call this doing research. We're totally convinced that someone was a murderer because that two hours of the documentary was totally convincing or that there was a cover-up or that we should all eat this one thing and never eat this other thing ever again. And you can't believe that no one realizes how obvious it's been all along. These last two hours have really changed your mind and opened your eyes. The idea behind all of it is that information affords us more control over our lives. And control is something that we desperately crave. So the Bible becomes dumb, ancient, no thanks. But a well-made Netflix documentary, sold or an op-ed in a publication that adheres to my already stubborn political leaning, that's crucial. Wild rants on an Instagram story, fire. Everyone needs to read this, you know, hands raised emoji or whatever. Paul warns the Colossians that systems based on black and white deliverables to achieve status righteousness, meaning do this and you're right, do this and you're wrong, they're simple, they're clear, and they're fast, but the truth takes longer. It's a journey with the mind set on things above. Dying with Jesus, being raised with him, setting your sights on him. This is the work of a lifetime. And a lifetime is often a long time. And the plague era taught us that we want answers and we want them fast. We all learned this about ourselves. It was incredible how unwilling we were as, you know, humanity to cope with the fact that there were so few immediate answers. And we couldn't take no for an answer. So depending on your political god, you might have run to wild-sounding conspiracies about Bill Gates and population control and secret pedophile cannibal celebrities to explain why the world had, without warning, descended into chaos, showing little to no regard for the way that we prefer the world to run. Without chaos, thank you very much. Or, you know, if joining the satanic sci-fi cult isn't your particular thing, you've got another political god, then maybe you'd go all in on science. I was hearing a lot about science for a very long time now. Trust the science. I don't know why I say it like that. But 
You've seen the, you know, the lawn signs and the bumper stickers that say, in this house, we believe in, or no, it's, we believe science is real. You believe science is real? The existence of science itself is in question? Who says that science doesn't exist at all? Who doesn't believe that science is real? Is anyone actually arguing that science is, or are they arguing against certain scientific conclusions or even theories, silly as those arguments may be? Science is a system that organizes knowledge in testable theories. It's a beautiful thing. Who are these people that don't believe science is real at all? Some, someone says, well, let's see if this works. And then someone else says, no, I, let's not see if it works. I do not believe that science is real. Anyway, the science is real thing seemed to force certain outspoken advocates into compromising corners. In March of 2020, early tests, you guys all remember this. Let me, let me take you back into everyone's horrible year. <laughs> Uh, early tests seemed to indicate that the novel coronavirus would hang around on surfaces, uh, doorknobs and countertops, for days and infect everyone who touched them. The World Health Organization said as much, so desperate to divide the world into an instantly quantifiable good-bad matrix, we got to work judging everyone who didn't pressure wash their groceries, or we got to work judging everyone who did pressure wash their groceries. Remember that? Everyone was buying gallons of, gallons of hand sanitizer and chugging it and stuff. But then, then a microbiologist at Rutgers New, New Jersey Medical School in Newark did a further study, which got published in July of the same year, and said, uh, never mind. <laughs> uh, it doesn't actually spread on surfaces at all. It doesn't seem like it anyway. And eventually, the big dogs came to agree. The CDC was like, oh, never mind about the surfaces. We just didn't know at the time, which is fair. You know, it's a whole new thing. Everybody's trying to figure it out. It takes time. But it was too late. We believe in science. So businesses are still wiping everything down, and people are judging other people based on whether or not they're not sanitizing surfaces or sanitizing them enough. And everything became politicized, a way of knowing who was on what side or revealing political allegiances. And remember, Paul's command to set your mind on things above is inherently political. Again, this from Scott McKnight. To seek the things above, then, means to live a life on earth under the resurrected King Jesus as the Lord of all creation, with the implication that Caesar is not their true Lord. Now, Caesar obviously references the actual human ruler at the time that the letter was written, but it also represents the power structures of belief outside of Jesus, be they religious, political, or otherwise. So for us, that's, you know, politics, of course, but also social media, streaming services, every glowing screen idea machine pointed gun-like at our vacant, welcoming expression. And my point is that we want a clear picture. It's not all bad. It's actually really understandable. It can be frustrating and even terrifying to learn the awful truth. Sometimes we just don't know what we would like to know. And it takes time to figure it out. We may make mistakes along the way. Even the experts may not know. And there's not much anyone can do about it except wait. Some things we may never know, at least not the way we'd like to know them. Truth takes a long time, just like redemption. A few weeks ago, I downloaded a web browser extension that blocks all recommended videos on YouTube. I like YouTube. There, I said it. I use it all the time at, at work to look up sermons and lectures and actual helpful information. But I have to admit, 
for someone easily distracted, I also clicked on, you know, the meme collections. You'd be doing some good work. And, oh, look at this. Click on this thing over here. Oh, a He-Man update. You know, now I'm watching that. Uh, they crowd the, the YouTube interface like flashing lights, begging you to waste your precious time on nonsense, essentially. Now, my YouTube interface is just a black screen with a search bar, by the grace of God. But before I was saved from the algorithms, there was a really fascinating and hilarious phenomenon in my YouTube recommendations all the time. And it was the whole, I tried blank for X amount of time video trend. Uh, it looks like this. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. The idea is that they'll say anything you can possibly think of. I tried whatever for, in the case of this particular example, seven days. That's nothing. It is as meaningless as a sneeze. You didn't try anything. You try something for seven days by accident. It's a non-event. And yet, this does not stop thousands upon thousands of influencers from promising their desperate public that what we want so badly to be true is true. You will get results after just seven days. Your life will change fast. You'll look different. You'll feel different. You'll be different. Look how my life is already different after these seven days. You will get the results that you're after. Author and journalist Malcolm Gladwell, he famously argued that it takes 10,000 hours to master anything. So if you're doing the math, that's four hours of practice, five days a week for 10 years. The idea is that if you practice four hours a day, five days a week for 10 years, if you have someone to teach you how to do it, if you have natural talent and 10 years, then you can master something. But the YouTubers are ready to tell you about the first seven day results. This is, in a nutshell, the world we keep pretending exists. The Amazon Prime world of instant gratification without the tedious bummer of a long-term commitment. In his book, After Doubt, Professor A.J. Swoboda reflects on the way our expectation of immediate results has impacted our ability to follow Jesus into theological patience. He writes, When a church needed an answer or issue addressed, they were not privileged to write a quick email, send a text, or find a helpful podcast on the topic. They didn't have a New Testament they could open and read. Until they got their answer, where would they go? They would pray and debate and disagree and talk and wrestle out their question and read the Old Testament. The letter from Paul or Peter or John would eventually arrive. The answer would come, but not for a long time. So he concludes, this process of sending expensive letters at the risk of personal harm and then waiting months, even years for a response, while difficult, no doubt, I believe had a powerful effect on the early Christians. The waiting pushed them toward one another and toward God. They became a theologically patient people. Our modern existence is not set up for any kind of patient prayer that waits for the answer over a lifetime. Rather, we have all the answers without having to form the character that can handle them. So, here it comes again for the hundredth time in this short series. For this to work, for us to grow in theological patience, we need each other. A friend of mine made a difficult life decision recently. He decided to step out of this role that he'd been carrying for many, many years. His whole life had been kind of built up around carrying out this role. And he was going to start something new for him. And for him, it was kind of a, a scary step. 
He told me about this years before it happened. And from where I sat, the first time he told me about it, it made perfect sense. His mind seemed to be made up to me. I couldn't really find any problems with the plan, not that it mattered a ton what I thought. He asked, so I said, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. He said, thanks. And then he waited and he prayed and he talked to people and he asked for their advice. Years went by and he and I were hanging out again. He told me about his plan again. It was even more formed than it had been before. It made even more sense than it did the first time. And he asked me, what do you think? What do you think I should do? I thought this was incredible. He wanted to make the step. The step made a lot of sense. The step was probably good, but he waited and he talked and he listened. And here he was asking me again. It wasn't even that I was some sage figure in his life. He was just asking all of his close friends for perspective, you tell me if you think this is right. You're a part of my life. I want to hear from someone other than my own thoughts. Then, another year later, he took the step. This, in my experience, is incredibly unique. More often than not, incredible life decisions are made on the heels of a hurt feeling, on the whim of laziness, in the vacuum of isolation, because whose business is it for anyone to speak into my life? And anyway... We want change to happen fast. We don't want to wait to sit around prayerfully and ask people what they think. We want the seven-day results. Faster is even better. But between now and the renewal of all things is a mysterious stretch of time, a question that won't be answered until it is. Us, we are to focus on Jesus, on what he said, on how he told us to live, we are to fill our minds with his truth every single day in a great number of ways over and over again, ever before us through the scriptures, learning, reading, listening, talking to one another, living together as a family who is together following Jesus and waiting. Redemption takes a long time, the slow, lifelong road during which we grow from a flickering spark and set out to become eventually all flame. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do this together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.